everybody it's thursday my favorite day of the week um and it's so funny everyone's like uh why do you say what day of the week it is when you know the podcast not everybody listens to it on that day i don't know i there's something about knowing what day of the week it is that's very <laughs> nice in this whole quarantine time when the days kind of blend together uh so anyway so that's why i always mention the day of the week um Plus, I, I start to feel guilty if I forget the days of the week because I feel like they are sad if we forget them because I anthropomorphize everything. Um, <laughs> well, the soup turned out really good last night. It was quite delicious. Um, I ended up making my own uh, like chicken broth because uh, we were out and I didn't feel like going to the store. It was the first time I'd ever done that. That was fun. I, uh, I used a, a red onion in... Um, to make the broth with and then by the time it was all done um you know boiling and soaking the onion had turned white i did not realize red onions were just like food color added onions like i don't know i i always assumed that like red onions would stay red but they don't they were all white by the time i was done boiling them so that was kind of a funny discovery you know you have to discover something new every day or something's wrong. I don't know. When I was a child, my dad, every, it seemed like every dinner, uh, cause we always had family dinners at the dinner table. My dad would look at us and be like, what did you learn today? And if you couldn't name anything, you basically had to sit at the table till you could name something. Uh, he was kind of a stickler about it. And the idea that he was trying to impart on us was that school you should have learned something from school or something in the world around you you should have observed something of interest or um, no day should pass by without learning something so I guess I'm kind of obsessed with it into adulthood um, so that's what I learned yesterday onions um, you all should message me what you have learned because I would think that that would be interesting today we are going to learn more about Edward Ferrer's visit to Barton Cottage. I don't think there are any chapter notes um, other than um, no. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Nah. Nah. We'll get to that when we get to that. So, no chapter notes. So, we'll go right ahead with chapter 19. remained about a week at the cottage. He was earnestly pressed by Mrs. Dashwood to stay longer, but as if he were bent only on self-mortification, he seemed resolved to be gone when his enjoyment amongst his friends was at its height. His spirits during the last two or three days, though very unequal, were greatly improved. He grew more and more partial to the house and environs, never spoke of going away without a sigh, declared his time to be wholly disengaged, even doubted to what place he should go when he left them. But still, go he must. Never had a week pass by so quickly. He could hardly believe it to be gone. I think that's kind of a cute way of thinking of traveling, that... I'm going to leave when my enjoyment is at its height and not linger until, you know, we've had a disagreement or there's been a dull day. But no, no like a week of really exciting times and then go. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think in this day and age, you know, people did go for much longer visits because, you know, he's a gentleman. He's not doesn't have any job that he has to hurry back to. Um, he's unmarried. And these ladies, of course, none of them have jobs. So people could gonna go and visit for three months or he visited at Norland when they were still living there. And they lived together for about six months. Um, so I don't you know. I... I think my longest visit to someplace, I stayed once with my sister when she was recovering from surgery. I think I stayed with her for six weeks, and that was probably the longest time I'd ever stayed as a visitor with someone. And um, that I thought it was delightful the entire time, but it was it because it wasn't really a visit of, you know, oh, I just want to visit you for funsies. I was there for, you know, a purpose. But it would be interesting to see, like, I don't know. What do you guys think? Would you want to just linger? I'd want to linger until I sucked every last drop out of a visit. But I'm used to visits, you know, where, well, I've got to turn around and leave because we all got to get back to our own lives. And so you only visit for a week or, oh, two weeks. Wow, that's a really long visit. Uh, anyway, okay. I've, I miss visiting people, you guys. I don't know about you all, but I miss it so much. I, I miss going on trips and staying somewhere. Oh, I... I want to be in Texas visiting my friends so bad. And I want to be in Virginia and Florida and all these places that are filled with coronavirus. Thanks, United States. Um, okay. And uh, then I just got from melancholy to bitter. So I'm going to move on with the story. He said so repeatedly other things he said too, which marked the turn of his feelings and gave the lie to his actions. He had no pleasure at Norland. He detested being in town, but neither to, but either to Norland or London he must go. He valued their kindness beyond anything, and his greatest happiness was being with them. Yet he must leave them by the end of the week, in spite of their wishes and his own, without any restraint on his time. Eleanor pl placed all that was astonishing in way of his acting on his mother's account, and it was happy for her that he had a mother whose character was so imperfectly known to her as to the general excuse for everything strange on the part of her son. Disappointed, however, and vexed as she was, and sometimes displeased with his uncertain behavior to herself, she was very well disposed, on the whole, to regard his actions with all the candid allowances and generous qualifications which had been rather more painfully extorted from her for Willoughby's service by her mother. His want of spirits, of openness, and of consistency were most usually attributed to his want of independence, and his better knowledge of Mr. Sparrow's disposition and designs. The shortness of his visit, the steadiness of his purpose in leaving them, originated in the same fettered inclination and the same inevitable necessity of temporizing temporizing, yeah, with his mother. The old, well-established grievance of duty against will, parent against child, was the cause of all. She could have been glad to know when these difficulties were to cease, this opposition was to yield. When Mrs. Ferrers was to be reformed, and her son to be at liberty and happy. But from such vain wishes she was forced to turn to for, for comfort to the renewal of her confidence in Edward's affection, to the remembrance of every mark of regard or look of word which fell from him while at Barton, and above all that flattering proof of it which he constantly wore around his finger. "'I think, Edward,' said Mrs. Dashwood, as they were breakfasting that last morning, "'you would have been happier man if you had any profession to engage your time and give you an interest to your plans and actions.' Some inconvenience to your friends, indeed, might result from it, but you would not be able to give them so much of your time. 
Oh, you would not be able to give them so much of your time. But, with a smile, you would be materially benefited in one particular at least. You would know where to go when you left them. I do assure you, said he, that I have long thought on this point, as you think now. It has been, and is, and probably always will be, a heavy misfortune to me, that I have no necessary business to engage me, no profession to give me employment, or to afford me anything like independence. But unfortunately, my own nicety and the nicety of my friends have made me what I am, an idle, helpless being. We could never agree on our choice of a profession. I always preferred the church, as I still do, but it is not smart enough for my family. They recommended the army. That was a great deal too smart for me. The law was allowed to be genteel enough. Many young men who had chambers in the temple made a very good appearance in the first circles and drove about town in very knowing gigs. But I had no inclination for the law, even in this less abstruse study of it which my family approved. As for the navy, it had fashion on its side, but I was too old when the subject was first started to enter it, and at length, as there was no necess necessity for my having any profession at all, I might be as dashing and expensive without a red coat on my back as with one. Idleness was pronounced on the whole to be the most advantageous and honorable, and a young man of eighteen is not in general so earnestly bent on being busy as to resist the solicitation of his friends to do nothing. I was therefore entered at Oxford, and have been pro properly idle ever since. "'The consequence of which, I suppose, will be,' said Mrs. Dashwood, "'since leisure has not promoted your unhappiness, "'that your sons will be brought up in many pursuits, "'employments, professions, and trades at Columella's. I'm going to look that up just a second. "'Okay, um... Kumela is apparently a literary character who um, also was determined to see all of his sons employed. And he went to great lengths in a story in, um, it looked like 1770, to employ all his sons. Um, so that's what she's referencing there. They will be brought up, said he in a serious accent, to be unlike myself as possible, in feeling, in action, in condition, in everything. Come, come, this effusion of immediate want of spirits, Edward, you are in melancholy humor, and fancy that anyone unlike yourself must be happy. But remember, the pain of parting from friends will be felt by everybody at times, whether their education or whatever their education or state. Know your own happiness. You want nothing but patience, or give it a fascinating name. Call it hope. Your mother will secure you in time that independence you are so anxious for. It is her duty. It will, it must ere long become her happiness to prevent your whole youth from being wasted in discontent. How many, how much may not a few months do? I think replied Edward, that I may but defy many months to produce any good in me. This desponding turn of mind, though it could not be communicated to Mrs. Dashwood, gave additional pain to them all in the parting which shortly took place, and left an uncomfortable impression on Eleanor's feelings especially, which required some trouble and time to subdue. But it was her determination to subdue it, and to prevent herself from appearing to suffer more than what all her family suffered in going away. She did not adopt the method so judici judiciously employed by Marianne on a similar occasion, 
to augment and fix her sorrow by seeking silence, solitude, and idleness, their means were as different as their objects and equally suited in the advancement of each. And Lenore sat down to her drawing table as soon as he was out of the house, and busied herself the whole of the day, neither sought nor avoided the mention of his name, appeared to interest herself as much as ever in the general concerns of the family, and, if by this conduct she did not lessen her own grief, it was at least prevented from unnecessary increase, as her mother and sisters were spared much solicitude on her account. Such behavior as this was so exactly the reverse of her own, and appeared no more meritorious to Marianne than her own had seemed faulty to her. The business was self-commanded. She settled very easily. With strong affections it was impossible. With calm ones it could not have no it could have no merit. That her sister's affections were calm she dared not deny, though she blushed to acknowledge it, and the strength of her own she gave by very striking proof, by still loving and respecting her sister in spite of this mortifying conviction. Okay, so Marianne is now convinced that her sister must not really love Edward, not the way she loves Willoughby, because if Eleanor really loved Edward, she would be distraught all day, just like she'd been when she parted with Willoughby. And it's a little embarrassing to have to think of a sister who could be so cold-hearted, but she's, you know, she's going to love and respect her sister anyway, even if her sister's embarrassing. And that's kind of Marianne's take on all this, um, which is a very young person thing to think uh, that, you know, because they don't feel the same emotions I feel the way I feel them, they must not experience my, any emotions compared to what I can feel. You know, it's that it's such a self-centered view of the world. And I don't mean that like in an I mean, it's obviously it's not a good thing, but I don't really mean it in a, like a criticizing way. It's just. You know, I think a lot of people say things like that. They're like, oh, well, you can't know what it really is to love until you have a child, you know? And it's like, it's one of those things. It's like, okay, yes, you have experienced emotions different than me, but you can't tell me that my emotions are not just as valid as yours because they're not the same as yours. Um, anyway, and so that's kind of what Marianne's going through at the moment. Without shutting herself up from her family, or leaving the house in determined solitude to avoid them, or lying awake the whole night to indulge mention, Eleanor found every day afforded her leisure enough to think of Edward, and of Edward's behavior, in every possible variety which the different state of her spirits at different times could produce, with tenderness, with pity, with approbation, censure, and doubt. There were moments in abundance when, if not by the absence of her mother and sister, at least by the nature of their employments, conversation was forbidden among them, and every effect of solitude was produced. Her mind was inevitably at liberty, her thoughts could not be chained elsewhere, and the past and future on a subject more interesting must be before her, must force her attention, and engross her memory, her reflection, and her fancy. From a reverie of this kind, she sat at her drawing-table. She was roused one morning after Edward's leaving them by the arrival of company. She happened to be quite alone. The closing of the little gate, the entrance of the green court at the front of the house, drew her eyes to the window. She saw a large party walking up to the door. Amongst them were Sir John and Lady Middleton and Mrs. Jennings, but there were two others, a gentleman and a lady, who were quite unknown to her. She was sitting near the window, and as soon as Sir John perceived her, he left the rest of the party to the ceremony of knocking at the door and stepping across the turf, obliging, 
obliged her to open the casement to speak to him, though the space was so short between the door and the window as to make it hardly possible to speak at one without being heard at the other. Well, well, we have brought you some strangers. How do you like them? Hush, they will hear you. Never mind if they do. It is only the Palmers. Charlotte is very pretty, I can tell you. You may look at her. You may see her if you look this way. As Eleanor was certain of seeing her within a couple of minutes, without taking that liberty, she begged to be excused. Where is Marianne? Has she run away because we are come? I see her instrument is open. She is walking, I believe. They were now joined by Mrs. Jennings, who had not the patience to wait till the door was open before she told her story. So, so technically, you know, according to the customs, they should have waited at the door. The servant would answer the door. They would be announced. They would all enter the room together and sit together properly. But Sir John, in his, you know, enjoyment of just being a weird little man, he crosses to the window, which is very near the door, and decides to just speak to her directly before they all come into the house. And, you know, he's asking Eleanor to look out the window. And Eleanor's like, dude, I'm about to, like, meet this person. I don't need to look. And then Mrs. Jennings has now come over to the window. And it just must seem so silly. Like, this is just this very silly tableau, you know? Okay. Anyway, that's just striking me. It's quite humorous today. How do you do, my dear? How does Mrs. Dashwood do? And where are your sisters? What? All alone? You will be glad of a little company to sit with you. I have brought my other son and daughter to see you. Only think of their coming so suddenly. I have heard a carriage last night while we are drinking our tea, but it never entered my head that it could be them. I thought of nothing but it might not be Colonel Brandon come back again. So I said to Sir John, I do think it... I hear a carriage. Perhaps it is Colonel Brandon come back again. Eleanor was obliged to turn from her in the middle of her story to receive the rest of the party. Lady Middleton introduced the two strangers, Mrs. Dashwood and Margaret, came downstairs while, at the same time, they all sat down to look at one another while Mrs. Jennings continued her story as she walked through the passage into the parlor attended by Sir John. Mr. Palmer was several years younger than Lady Middleton, and totally unlike her in every res- or Mrs. Palmer, not Mr. Palmer, excuse me. Mrs. Palmer, Palmer was several years younger than Lady Middleton, and totally unlike her in every respect. She was short and plump, and had a very pretty face, and the finest expression of good humor that could possibly be. Her manners were by no means so elegant as her sister's, but they were very much more prepossessing. She came in with a smile, and smiled all the time of her visit except when she laughed, and smiled as she went away. Her husband was a grave-looking young man of five or six-and-twenty, with an air of more fashion and sense than his wife, but less willingness to please or to be pleased. He entered the room with a look of self-consequence, bowed slightly to the ladies, without speaking a word, and, after briefly surveying about the apartments, took up a newspaper from the table and continued to read it as long as he stayed. Which is kind of rude. I, I mean, you went to visit these people's house, you should at least, you know, pass the time of day with them, as one might say, you know, ask, oh, how long have you been in the area, you know, who were you related to, you know, like, just the small talky things that are considered polite. Instead, he, like, just, like, opens up a newspaper and is like, I'm not here. 
just just go on without me. This is all silly. And that's, you know, not very polite. Um, anyway. So, and I don't... I think it's pretty... If you remember, Mrs. Jennings has two daughters. So these are Mrs. Jennings' two daughters. Mrs. Palmer and Lady Middleton. Um, and so uh, Mr. Palmer is not her biological son. Even though she calls him her son. Because that's what you do with sons-in-law sometimes. Anyway. So, yes, the, the, the ladies are sisters. Mrs. Palmer, on the contrary, who is strongly endowed by, with nature for a turn for being uniformly civil and happy, was hardly seated before her admiration of the parlor and everything in it burst forth. Well, what a delightful room this is! I never saw anything so charming! Only think, Mama, how it improved... How improved how it is improved since I was here last. I always thought it such a sweet place, ma'am, turning to Mrs. Dashwood. But you've made it so charming. Only look, sister, how delightful everything is. How I should like a house for myself. Should you not, Mr. Palmer? Mr. Palmer made no answer and did not even raise his eyes from the newspaper. Mr. Palmer does not hear me, <laughs> said she, laughing. He never does sometimes. It is so ridiculous. This was quite a new idea to Mrs. Dashwood. She had never been used to find wit or inattention of anyone, and used to find wit in the attention of an inattention of anyone. Wow, and could not help looking with some surprise at them both. Mrs. Jennings, in the meantime, talked on as loud as she could and continued the account of her surprise the evening before on seeing their friends without ceasing till everything was told. Mrs. Palmer laughed heartily at the recollection of their astonishment, and everybody agreed two or three times over that it had been quite an agreeable surprise. "'You may believe how glad we are to see them,' added Mrs. Jennings, leaning forward towards Eleanor, and speaking in a low voice as if she meant to be heard by no one else, though they were seated on different sides of the room. "'But, however, I can't help wishing they had not travelled quite so fast, nor made up such a long journey, for they came round by London upon all account of some business, for you know,' nodding significantly and pointing to her daughter." It was wrong in her situation. I wanted her to stay at home and rest this morning, but she would come with us. She'd long to see you all. Mrs. Palmer laughed and said it would not do her any harm. She expects to be confined in February, continued Mrs. Jennings. <laughs> uh, which means Mrs. Palmer is pregnant um, and... So they said, you know, a long carriage ride, all that bouncing about, you know, in a days before they really did understand, like, how women's bodies were, I mean, hell, some doctors still don't understand it. Um, but, you know, before they really did understand how women's bodies worked and when a day and age when infant mortality and um, maternal fatalities were so high, I can understand why they had this thing called confinement where women at a certain stage of pregnancy needed to be shut up and like as in shut away and not allowed to be out and about and doing things um, because they didn't think anything was safe. And actually the confinement thing that I, you know, you, you read about it and they say, oh, it was a matter of propriety. You don't want to see pregnant people in public. It's kind of weird to look at them. And I mean, I don't think that that was really, personally, I don't think that was really the cause of it. Because, I mean, 
they didn't understand the nature of pregnancy, really. They didn't understand why babies died, why women died. And so a safe thing to do was to practice this method of confinement um, where a woman usually in towards like her third trimester, middle of her second, would go and be shut up from public view. And it probably saved a lot of women and babies just from general infection. I mean, you know diseases that harm premature babies like the measles were rampant at this time um and yeah they've said things you know like bouncing around in a carriage was dangerous and you know obviously now we know that that's not true but i understand the over precaution of the day and age but anyway that's what confinement was um it's an interesting thing to read about it there is kind of this other point of view that it was a way of shutting away women from public view when they were in um, a sort of disreputable position because, you know, yes, you're married properly and yes, babies are natural, but you shouldn't go around showing everyone about it and your bloated body. And in a day and age where dress was very important and um, you had to wear, you know, clothes just so to be wearing maternity clothes was very difficult. Um, and it, you wouldn't look quite right. And, uh, so there's this, uh, there's a, definitely another side to it. And, um, it is a side to it that has kept women, um, unfortunately, even to this day, still very much, um, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Like not in trouble, but like, women still are expected to, when they are pregnant, to give up their lives and to not go out and about. And um, so I think that's definitely carried over from this era of confinement. Like, you know, it was groundbreaking news when a woman nursed on the floor of Congress. Um, you know, I was like, oh my God, how could she do that? And you know, it's of course a very natural thing. Like, why wouldn't she? But, um, and, you know, in my opinion, but I mean, like, so I think that that confinement thing did a disservice to society in that it kind of made the world sort of, um, it, not used to seeing pregnant people and not used to thinking about how babies came to be and what happened with them. And so it did kind of like dull this, uh, so it did have this other side to it that has had ramifications into the present even um, the whole confinement process, but it, it, from what I have read, many people believe that it did start as a prevention against disease and harm to mother and child, which used to make sense. It didn't. So anyway, back to our story, Charlotte, Mrs. Palmer, um, she, uh, she did a bouncing carriage ride and laughs and said it would do no her no harm. And then she's going to be confined in February. It's probably, I don't remember what month it is, but that's probably not too far off. Okay. Lady Middleton could no longer endure such a conversation and therefore exerted herself to ask Mr. Palmer if there were any news in the paper. No, none at all, he replied and read on. Here comes Marianne, cried Sir John. Now, Mr. Palmer, you shall see a monstrous pretty girl. 
He immediately went into the passage, opened the front door, and ushered her in himself. Mrs. Jennings asked her as soon as she appeared if she had not been to Allenham. And Mrs. Palmer heartily laughed at the question to show she understood it. Mr. Palmer looked up on her entering the room, stared at her some minutes, and then returned to his paper. Mrs. Palmer's eye was now caught by the drawings which hung around the room. She got up to examine them. Oh, dear, how beautiful these all are. Well, how delightful. Do look, Mama, how sweet. I declare they're quite charming. I could look at them forever. And then sitting down again, she soon forgot there were any such things in the room. When Lady Middleton rose to go away, Mr. Palmer rose also, laid down the paper, stretched himself, and looked at them all round. My love, have you been asleep? said she, laughing. He made no answer, and only observed again, after examining the room, that it was very low-pitched, and the ceiling was crooked. He then made his bow, and departed with the rest. Sir John had been very urgent with them to spend the next day at the park. Mrs. Dashwood, who did not choose to dine with them oftener than they dined at the cottage, absolutely refused on her own account, but her daughters might do as they pleased. But they had no curiosity to see how Mr. and Mrs. Palmer ate their dinner, and no expectation of pleasure from them in any way. They were attempted, therefore, likewise, to excuse themselves. But the weather was uncertain and not likely to be good. However, Sir John would not be satisfied. The carriage should be sent for them, and they must come. Lady Middleton, too, though she did not press their mother, pressed them. Mrs. Jennings and Mrs. Palmer enjoyed their entreaties, and all seemed equally anxious to avoid a family party. The young ladies were obliged to yield. "'Why should they ask us?' said Marianne as soon as they were gone. "'The rent of this cottage is said to be low, but we have it on very hard terms. If we are to dine at the park whenever anyone is staying with them or with us, they are by no means less. "'They mean no less to be civil and kind to us now,' said Eleanor, by those frequent invitations, but than by those we received from them weeks ago. The alteration is not in them. If their parties are grown de tedious and dull, we must look for change elsewhere. End chapter 19. Right, so we have Mrs. Jennings, other family members who seem as equally bizarre as Mrs. Jennings herself. Um, you know, it's one of those things, it's so funny. I think Jane Austen really wrote great characters. And, you know, everyone in her book is such a character. Um, and I, I really appreciate it. You read a lot of books and the background people, you know, like we know or we assume that Lady Middleton, Sir John, the Palmers are not important characters to this story. But they all, in just a few pages, had their own very obvious characterhood. And you could extrapolate a whole life from them just from a few interactions. And I think that was one of her real brilliant things in her writing. And I always enjoy it. Um other people you read them and you know the guy came in and out of the room and he was necessary for a plot point and then you never heard from him again um so yeah i definitely i like her books because i think she had really good character studies um anyway 
so the Palmers are very amusing. Um, I I do like you know the he's just so ridiculous. One of the movie versions of Sense and Sensibility, Hugh Laurie plays Mr. Palmer, and he is very very good at it. Um, he's very witty. I. I never watched much of House that Hugh Laurie was in. It just never, like, eh, I was only okay with it. I watched it. Um, I had a friend who liked to play House a lot. And when I go visit her, sometimes we watch it in the evenings. Um, but I really liked the Jeeves and Wooster series that Hugh Laurie was in. And so I got used to seeing him as this, like, dolt, you know, brainless, <laughs> just silly. And to see him as Mr. Palmer is just so amusing to me because he's so sarcastic and just, like, Ugh, I just love it. Anyway, um, I think on another podcast on a chapter that's a little shorter, we can talk about movie versions. I left it to the end of the Pride and Prejudice, or Pride and Prejudice, of uh, the Persuasion podcast. I might do it a little sooner um, in this one. We'll just see how the, the timing and the flow goes. I just watched Persuasion again and since I read it. And I was astonished at how fast the movie went by because it was only an hour and a half movie. And I was like, what? The movie is already over. Persuasion is not that fast. Why did they skip? How could they do that? So, yeah, so there's a real danger sometimes of watching a movie in the middle of reading a book. And sometimes right after you just shouldn't attempt it. Anyway, we might talk about that at another time in more depth. I, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and read the next chapter. I need to go to the store, but I don't feel like it, so reading it is, and I'll see you all in just a minute.